I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. probably may have noticed that i sound terrible <laughs> <laughs> folks write in and tell mike how terrible he sounds yeah i as if i don't fucking feel it <laughs> um but yeah I, I have a little bit of a cold that i'm getting over it was a little bit into the, the hex episode i hope it's not new too noticeable but you know we just want to let you know fair listener that you're getting what you're paying for we're we're forcing mike under duress to record because he's supposed to record today i think everyone needs to pay an extra dollar into patreon <laughs> so i can get new vocal cords <laughs> or at least at least for a band-aid well emergency tracheotomy at least yeah put a fucking straw through my throat <laughs> is that the one bit of emergency surgery that you've seen on a dozen tv shows it's the one bit of emergency surgery that i've seen on movies and tv shows that i think i probably could do myself i that would be the one thing I could never do. If there's one thing I don't want to do is cut a hold in like a child's throat and put a <laughs> pen or a straw in. Well, it. here's the thing: you can see it from the, well, you can see it from the outside or feel it. Like if it would be like, well, you've got to do an appendectomy. I'd be like, well, as soon as you cut someone open, I have no idea where it is. Mm-hmm. With your tracheotomy, I can, I know where your trachea is. I can just stab a hole through your neck with a, with a scalpel. Yeah, or if with I had a rusty knife. If there hadn't been a thousand deaths by <laughs> stabbing through the throat. You have that that cascade, just like a spray of blood, like it's a fire hydrant that somebody hit the top with a hammer. I think this is one one of the many problems of the prevalence of post-apocalyptic fiction, especially zombie movies, is that people assume that they probably could do an emergency tracheotomy or some such shit because they watch enough like gore on Walking Dead that they are like immune to it. And that they wouldn't in real life when they're actually seeing someone like with a spurting out with a, you know, blood spurting out that they wouldn't just fucking panic and freeze up. A lot of times that spurt is like putting your thumb over the end of a hose. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's usually how they do it in a movie is they've got some guy with his hand on a pump and it's pumping it out. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's I think it's that's the other thing, too, is how survivable certain injuries are and the time it takes to recover from them. (laughs) I really if it's in in an Arnold movie, it's like, oh, you're dead. 20, like 20 minutes. You're okay if you have like an arterial bleed. He can just like sort of stand up and. If you're a if you're a live character, your ability to survive getting shot in like the abdomen, you'll be <laughs> fine for a while as long as they can get you into the helicopter. Oh. It's sort of like a save point. But I mean, yes. if you're an unnamed character, <laughs> there's just assumption that the minute you leave the screen, you're dead. I it's that it's like the, I mean, one of the many the I'm not the first to say this like the problems with the post George R. R. Martin book episodes of game of thrones is like they're just like wounds that no one should ever come back from so i guess spoilers for anyone on the planet who hasn't seen it but the previous season where uh aria is in bravos yes learning to be a faceless man um is it she a faceless woman they always just say she's a faceless man i think it's like the x-men that everyone's an x-man even if you're a woman so storm is an x-man but at the end she gets stabbed in this the abdomen and drops into a river and repeatedly yeah and then suddenly like just a couple days later she's like oh i'm leaving i'm fine if you got stabbed like that with like a shiv on the show oz you'd be dead (laughs) or you would you'd be like in a coma for several episodes in like the infirmary i i like that i like that before 
Game of Thrones uh sounded like it was the kind of um like it was the kind of show where if someone had a grievous wound, it would behave like a grievous wound instead of like a movie wound. And now I feel like they're all movie wounds. Well, that's the thing is that I, I've heard this argument a lot. People are like, well, you know, you just didn't try that problem when they were dragons. And I'm like, well, that's because Game of Thrones as a property before they ran out of books was one that almost seemed to go out of its way to ground itself on the mundane. Yeah. Like travel time or the wounds or what something would do to you. Like, remember the the whole point of Jamie Lannister losing his hand was that he couldn't fight anymore and that when he learned how to fight again, he was crappy at it. So he mostly had to talk his way out of situations or just kind of be a battle commander. Well, that's just kind of off the bend. He's just left-handed now. That's all, that's all there is to it. And he's a really good fighter again. Right. And I guess that's just off, you know, off uh, screen training with Braun. But it's the same thing. Like there's an episode, the the thing with travel in this show, that's a little crazy. Like how long does it take a Raven to get somewhere? But there was an episode where Varys goes all the way from Marine, which is thousands of miles to Dorne. And then by the last shot, of the episode where everyone is with Daenerys on the ships coming to Westeros again, he's on, on board the ship. Yeah. He, he must be like, must be like the Bethesda games. Yeah. He has fast travel <laughs> that he had already been to Dorne. So he had it on his map. That's why they sent him. They had to send him. Uh, Cause I don't think Tyrion had been there before. So he hadn't lo- locked that location on and discovered it. Oh man. There's such a, there is such a sunk cost fallacy. With uh, watching Game of Thrones at this point. Well, that's the thing is, it's the weird thing with Game of Thrones is that it's gotten a lot stupider in the last two seasons, but it's also gotten (laughs) a lot of fun to watch, which is the other thing is it's, it's kind of great and stupid, which is what it wasn't before, where it was kind of great and smart. And I think that they have written themselves into a place where they're speeding it up. Like you can feel how quickly this, the show is moving now, where you look at, look, just, the White Walkers, like how little you saw of them for a long time. Or right, right. They were on the move. It was like a real slow burn. And then they just hit the gas at the end. It's kind of like the Transformers movie where after like two seasons and like 50 episodes of the Autobots and the Decepticons fighting each other. And it's almost like the safety's on. The movie kicks in and all of a sudden they're really good at killing each other. <laughs> it's like the competence level of the Decepticons goes way up and suddenly they're slaughtering these people. Like it's the end of a Sam Peckinpah movie. Well, it it certainly seems like they're racing. Like like it's a race to get to the end at this yeah. point. Because uh, spend, they just spent so much time. Think about how, think about how the stretch of time between... Ned Stark being asked to be the hand to getting to to getting to the King's Landing and then being and dying is uh for the span of time for the show like is not very much time that it ends up happening but for a number of hours on TV it was like what 12 hours or so 10 oh, or 12 yeah. hours or something just the travel to King's Landing that it's like two or three episodes yeah it it really kind of gives you a sense of the sense of scale of things yeah and They've kind of just gone, nope, we need to get there fast. And there was a whole big thing where it was probably at its most absurd, where they go north, they send a dude to run all the way back to the wall from where they were, <laughs> and then he has to tell somebody that, hey, John is in danger, and they go up there, and then they send a raven from Eastwatch, which is on the, the east side of the continent, like a thousand miles south to Dragonstone. They have to receive that message. Then go to Danny, 
Danny goes, okay, makes a decision, then gets her dragons, then flies. I believe a dragon would fly a lot faster than a sure. raven. But I, yeah, yeah. Just the airspeed. The probably. number of servants that go between it. It's not like this thing drops in Danny's inbox. Yeah, it's not a text message. There's there's a person, <laughs> you know, like usually like a maester of some kind, whose only job is to watch the ravens and make sure that something comes in there. Because if they're not in that room, there's just a raven with a thing tied to its leg that's just sitting in there <laughs> until somebody pulls it out and gives it to their boss. Oh. So, I mean, this is a kind of absurdity where, you know, normally with a lot of shows, if this was Star Wars, I'd fucking let it go. But Game of Thrones was always a show that went out of its way to ground itself almost to an absurd degree. It 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 feels like the type of shenanigans of just sort of for for plot convenience shenanigans you'd expect in a J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. Yeah, is what it feels like. It feels like there's just suddenly there's a lot less episodes to do this stuff, so they're doing it really fast. Well, it's it shows that there's a lot less interest in them uh, trying to find uh, trying there to be a basis in sort of temporality or, or or relativity, I guess you could say, where just temporarily things can't happen. They can only happen so fast, right? Things can only go so far there. But for the purposes of pacing of a show, they've just decided that it's a faster paced show. Yeah. Really. It's much more of an action show now. Yeah. yeah. But it's the same thing with the, the thing that makes George R. R. Martin really unique and the stuff that people who are fans of the books are, including the guys who make this show is that he can make scenes where it's a bunch of people sitting around a dinner table deciding to do a thing, the sort of the meat, the mundane stuff, and making it still high drama. Yeah. That's the stuff that a lot of shows don't do, and they had that stuff sort of pre-written for them, and it was already sort of exciting. They just needed to adapt it to a different medium. Right, right. And they have great actors, so they can make that stuff work. And I think they successfully did it for the first three or four seasons. Oh, yeah, they totally did. And that's the stuff where they completely abandoned a number of storylines that Martin created, um, including all the stuff in Dorne. Yeah. So ultimately, yeah. they just decided that oh fuck Dorn, like <laughs> they, they that's my last name. No, it's not my. The, last the name. thing oh Casey Dorn, <laughs> yes. but the thing to to know with the book version of Dorn, which is really interesting, is that the character of Prince Doran, um, <laughs> which is your last name, um, he is actually a really cool character. And they got Alexander Siddig from Deep Space Nine yeah, to play him like, on the yeah, show, Bashir, for like two episodes, yeah. and then they just killed him. And here's the other thing too, if your um the consort of your brother kills the ruler of an area you don't just inherit all of the people that were there they know that you killed their boss so it just seems like the transition to that just kind of happened like a chess game Oop, i won i get all your stuff <laughs> and not knowing that these are people and then they just decide they have nothing to do with Dorn at all so they just killed off all the Dorn characters recently or threw them in a dungeon and now we don't even talk about Dorn. Like, you know, there's still a bunch of fucking people down there. Yeah, there's still apparently maybe if you like 10,000 people, I don't know, tens of thousands of soldiers you hope to recruit to fight a giant horde of undead. I mean, those people weren't all of them. They didn't empty out all of Dorn to go <laughs> yeah. on those ships for Danny and they just all got captured. Right. right. By Euron Crozai. Yeah. I mean, it's just so weird. Yeah. Uh... Uh, there's a there's a there's a part that this is us tilting at windmills, shaking our cane thing because, you know, this last season was more popular than any of the seasons that came before it, and I have a feeling that the uh, this type of audience that the George R. R. Martin books would have appealed to in you know 1994, um, 
w- was never that sort of action movie going audience, although it is now. Yeah. Um, because of the shows, and there's no going back at this well, point. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is I just yeah. I have to take them as two separate entities. But I I like a lot of the moments from the show. Yeah. I just wish they would slow down a little bit. Right. I mean, it's the point where it gets really absurd to do something that's awesome and kind of crowd pleasing. Um, there's stuff in it that I really do like, stuff that I really do think carries over. But I think George R. R. Martin gave them a very thin um, scaffolding of what he wanted to do later. The part where I do get a little annoyed, and this is the part that probably bugs me the most, is that there are great moments that I'm sure our George R. R. Martin came up with. But he doesn't get to be the first person to share those ideas now. Yeah. And when I see those ideas play out in the books as they come out eventually, I'll have the show sort of being the prism that I'm seeing it through. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, if he came up with this really great idea, like the revelation, of course, of John's parentage that they did. Right. That's been a fan theory for a long time. It's a fan theory that I subscribe to, and I really do think it's true. Yeah. But I really wish Martin had been the guy to get to tell that to people. Right, right, right. Because he's been the one setting that up since, like, 1991. Right. <laughs> so he should get, be able to get the one to open the present and, on Christmas and share it with people. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, you know, if you're, if you're talking about sort of sunk cost, as, and as I like to call it, the uh, – um, the uh, fanboy Stockholm syndrome, because that's where that's where you are now with Game of Thrones. Probably by the time this fun size episode drops, which by the way, are we still calling them fun size episodes? Yes, we are. Okay, all oh, yes, right, we are. we are. We're gonna. I think we decided that we're gonna change our numbering scheme to some degree. Well, I don't know if that's gonna happen. I don't think it's gonna happen. People don't care. People aren't collecting our issues and putting them in bags, bags and boards, and in long boxes. You know, we don't. There needs to be real, no real consistency. This was recorded in the year 2017. You could probably listen to a fun size episode from 2016 and still be as interested. Hopefully, um, what when this drops, the first episode of and maybe even the second episode of Star Trek Discovery will have uh, debuted on the weakest ass choice of a venue for uh, releasing it, which is on CBS's all access digital streaming service. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll know uh, after all of the gnashing of teeth that i've been doing all of the all of the the tmj lockjaw that i've got from grinding of teeth after everything i'm reading about it on the internet if i will be so pleasantly surprised or if i will be reluctantly res- resigning myself to the the fear and the apprehension that i have about right now about it being a middling piece of shit that's been passed al- down from uh the, the shoulders of brian fuller who's legitimately an awesome show creator, down to lesser men. Well, I think the thing that they don't seem to get, I think, because they keep trying to recreate action Star Trek, is that there's too much competition for the action sci-fi kind of dollar right now. Yeah. And the number of eyeballs that want to watch that, you're competing with not only Star Wars, but Guardians of the Galaxy and countless other things. So, I mean, that's there and it's popular. But isn't it actually a better move to do something much more traditional Star Trek? I mean, if it's on a streaming service, and we've said this a thousand times, somebody who wants to pay almost exclusively for a new Star Trek show is probably not going to be a casual fan. No. that would, If it was on Netflix, then I would totally get casual fan Star Trek. And and, and no one's going to, per, going to basically, they're asking basically to pre-order it. They're saying, well, you you know, you've got to, you got to pay up front. You've got to absolutely put your money down before you have any idea of its quality. Well, the other thing too is that it's also apparently going to be released 
like a TV show that airs on television. So yeah. it's not going to be dropped like Stranger Things or House of Cards all at once, and then you can you can binge it. So it's like, ooh, The Defenders is out. That means I can watch all eight episodes until three or four in the morning. No, it's it's basically I have one a week, so I have to be subscribed to it that entire time. So you're not just paying once for it. You're either waiting until it's all out to binge it, or you're subscribing for probably several months if it's a regular length season, which is 13 to 20 something. Yeah, yeah. That's a couple months of you paying this streaming service. For a lot of people, unless they're really big fans of like CSI, I don't think there's a lot of crossover appeal between this show and a lot of the other C- uh, CBS yeah. shows on there. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll 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 give, I'll give CBS this credit, which is yeah, it's a silly ham-fisted idea to uh, to assume that this, this this what they're putting on now with Star Trek Discovery at all maps over to like you know, Chuck Lorre comedies or any of those procedural American procedural detective shows. They don't really, they're not the same. However, if CBS needed one property to be the flagship, to be the killer app, this would be it. So that's understandable, right? But what I know about CBS makes it so strange that they would be the partner in this at all, that they would be interested in a Star Trek show. Well, I mean, I think they—I think it's because CBS got the rights to do it from Paramount a couple of years ago, and so oh. they secured it. So it was basically only ever going to be their right to produce their right to produce it. However, you know, in other countries, it's being distributed on Netflix. So they—they um, they realize that CBS All Access is probably not an, a complete non-starter if you live in you know Britain. But it's weird in terms of you know a network on TV saying, okay, we're going to go in-house for a streaming service. Mm -hmm. There are certain companies and and networks that can do that. And you wouldn't question it all. HBO Go or HBO Now, whichever version of it you have, Mm -hmm. they have a back catalog that can appeal to so many different people. So it's everything from like The Sopranos to all the sports they have on there to documentaries from like Vice to, you know, but Game they, of Thrones. They were always a subscription model, right? So all of those premium cable channels basically worked in the same in the same economic vein. They were yeah. all, it was always going to be like you have to pay X number of dollars a month, and it's just the difference now is that there's now there's the instant you can get your instant gratification. Well, there's yeah. time shifted shit for you. But I mean, a, a network like that, like Disney's doing its own streaming, it makes total sense. Yeah. Disney has such a massive back catalog of so many things that it makes sense that you would. You would go with them. That Disney could afford to pull away. BBC could do it. Yeah. Uh, and I think AMC has gotten strong enough that it could do it. But not a lot of networks can. CBS is such a weird choice that yeah. I could see them just partnering with Netflix outright rather than trying to go it alone on their own subscription model. Yeah. I mean, clearly it's because they want a larger cut because uh, they don't suppose – I don't. you definitely don't make – when someone watches 10 episodes of, uh, I don't know – Columbo or whatever they don't whoever the rights holder are doesn't make as much as selling and you know a box dvd box for that they just don't make that but I, I i wonder though so this is their attempt to recoup that right yeah that i it's always the question of do i want a bigger percentage of less or do i want a a, a smaller percentage of more i guess it completely depends on what you're selling it's kind of the same thing as being you know working for marvel comics versus image comics mm-hmm. that um if you were writing the amazing spider-man you get a such a tiny percentage as writer or artist of the stuff that you sell. But if you do the same kind of comic for image, like you do a creator owned book, 
you get a huge percentage of a much smaller number of sales. Right. And the weird thing is right. you can actually make a lot more money doing it through image as long as you have a steady um, fan base. So I don't know if CS, CBS has that kind of fan base is the question I have. Well, I, I suppose we're going to end up seeing. I mean, my my real concern is that uh, here's my prediction. If I'm going to put on my Kreskin, Kreskin uh, hat and, and try to predict the future is, is that the show will be not unlike – Seth MacFarlane's new Star Trek ripoff show, The Orville, very underwhelming to start yeah. off with. Like where you can see that the money's on the screen, right? Um, you can you can tell from the scenarios and the characters that there has been thought put into making it work in sort of in a Star Trek-y way, but it will have like a TNG season one problem mm-hmm. where it will be super flat and cringeworthy and just like just generally most of it you do not want to rewatch again. But it might need the second season or it might need to get to a third season to be able to flush out something that where they find writers and good enough writers and they understand what, what's good about it so they can start producing stuff that's good. I just don't think a CBS All Access is going to give them the money they want to. And if it's mediocre, they're not going to get those subscriptions because people are not going to be as interested in it to get a second or a third season. And that's my big worry. Well, that's a weird thing with – you mentioned the Orville is I think the Orville is weird because it's actually trying to harken back to sort of 90s era Star Trek in a oh, lot yeah. of ways visually. Oh, yeah. The sort of utopian future. You know, you have a, a ship that has kind of the carpeted floors and <laughs> the lighting and the uniforms being what they are, where you look at, at Discovery and there's a lot of lens flare and the, even the uniforms are less colorful. They're sort of a dark blue and black. Yep. yep. With little highlights of gold. And everything just looks dark. Like they're just turning everything down. It's almost I wouldn't go as far or as insulting to say Zack Snydering, but <laughs> There is an element of it. Yeah, it yeah. looks more like grim and gritty Star Trek. Yeah. And the Orville looks like old school Star Trek. The weird thing that I do kind of like with the Orville, just sort of getting into that, because they're kind of approaching it from the opposite angles, Yeah, is that I think there are parts of Orville that really work. I do like the cast. Um, the little world building stuff is actually kind of neat. Like I noticed that the badges that people wear are all different. Mm-hmm. Not only do they have the same kind of Star Trek style color schemes where different departments have different uniforms. I think they're like on the Orville, they're red, blue, and green. Yeah. And like the captain command people wear blue and like the security people wear red and there's like the doctor has green. And I, I like that, but also the badge is different, like for different departments mm-hmm. and little things like that. I think they did really well and are neat. And, uh, but it's the jokes. Yeah. The jokes just don't work on the show. And it looks like, and this is the part that feels weird. It looks like 90s Star Trek, but a lot of the jokes feel like they're from an earlier age. Like jokes about, like the same thing with like, there's like a species on the ship that is only male in their species. And the immediate thing is, is Seth MacFarlane makes a joke about, oh, I guess you don't have to argue about leaving the toilet seat up. And I'm like, are we doing toilet seat jokes? <laughs> and that this is this is the question. It feels like this is my beef with Seth MacFarlane in general. I think that he's a smart, funny, charming guy. And in interviews, I love him to death. And I love that he, fa- he uh, put up the money to do Cosmos. Yeah, fuck yeah. I think that's fucking great. But with this, it always feels like he goes for the laziest, easiest joke in every situation. 
And I get more angry with him than I do with other people because it feels like he's capable of so much better. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, it's clearly the uh, family guy is a better vehicle for that sort of joke, right? It's a better vehicle for when you can do the easier joke that's about, you know, urination, just like piss jokes or whatever. Well, the, the universe totally sells it better. I I share your reservation. And there are other uh, – clearly there are other writers on the show other than Seth MacFarlane. And maybe – this is the side the same thing with Discovery. Maybe the problem is is that Fox is just not going to give it enough time for it to start like to to mature into uh, a format that it, that works. And you know we have no patience, we have no tolerance well, with our, with the yeah. se- selection of the of things we could be watching, especially things we could be watching that we don't have to wait until Sunday, you know, on at whatever o'clock to actually watch. Um, like. It's just going to get buried. Yeah, when something is just okay, that's like a death thing today. Yeah. I mean, if you watch a lot of old TV from like the 70s, when there were only three major networks, a lot of it was pretty mediocre. And you could survive on that because there weren't a lot of choices. But nowadays, you die being okay. Like one of the um, – because the Orville isn't terrible. It's just kind of, eh. <laughs> you know, it's, it was okay. There's bits of it that I liked and there's a couple jokes that I laugh at. And I said – the weird thing is Seth MacFarlane himself is a weirdly likable presence, despite the fact that I don't like a lot of the stuff that he does. Mm-hmm. I think him himself is likable in this role, even when his character is being an outright dick, like arguing with his ex-wife and stuff. <laughs> that that already is a place that's a good place to start, where your character can be doing things that would bother me with a lot of other actors, but there's something likable about you that pulls it out of being mean-spirited. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's good. but. There was a an article, I think I mentioned this to you, the name of the headline of the review of the Orville, I, was it Hollywood Reporter or Variety? The headline was Make It So-So. <laughs> and that's what it feels like. It feels like it's just kind of yeah. like, eh. But it, when I have, I'm, we are spoiled for choice nowadays. Yep, yep. And, you know, so-so doesn't really make, you know, make it into my diet. I mean, uh, yeah, my thought about this really is, is uh, I was thinking about the net so netflix is sort of the thing where you can get people that's become this rabid fan base for stuff that is just brand new and is uh and of course challenges the type of stuff that you might see, see on a network like stranger things is yeah. something that there is a lot of i think mostly well-earned uh fandom for and fan enthusiasm for because i think it's something that's unique and that you know, ABC would never have came out. Would never have, have allowed it to happen. I think they. No. Got, I think they got. I think they got turned down like ten times. The guys who who did Stranger Things from other from other networks and other studios to do it, and Netflix said yes. Um, however, I don't think it's amazing. I don't think. I don't think Stranger Things is is like will will change drama on television, and it's totally amazing. I think it's. I think it's good. I think it's good. I think something like Ozark. Um, which I I read a lot more about about have heaps of praise on Ozark is okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's uh, but and this is the thing is that for Netflix I think the the convenience factor the binge factor and that you get it for free basically you, you're already paying for it you get it for it is enough that makes people like oh for this you know four days when I'm binging all of it it's what I'm into and then I and then it, and it doesn't matter if it's great you do, it has no. It has no breathing room to to build up to being to starting with something that's kind of intriguing to getting better and better and better. It's just kind of you know toilet paper. You're, yeah. you're done with it and you flush it. So it doesn't need to be amazing. It does not need to be amazing. It's, it's weird because you you when you watch a lot of stuff and I watch a lot of stuff. I've watched a t- I've watched over two hundred movies this year, 
And what that ends up doing, and I think this maybe get you into the critic mindset because they're constantly watching things, is so many things that you watch are enjoyable, but ultimately forgettable. Yeah. And where you, I can see why people get angry at critics because ultimately you see a lot of the same shit over and over and over again. So when it's done well, it does stick out. Stranger Things was, I would say, very good show. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It had a lot of heart. But the you know the best thing about Stranger Things is not mm-hmm. just that kids were really good, but it was that the the show was restrained enough that it knew that it should only be eight episodes long. And that's mm-hmm. something a lot of Netflix shows, especially Marvel, doesn't get. That I think they have a contract that says you have to do 13, where most Marvel shows, with the exception, I think, of Daredevil, they're usually about three to four episodes too long. That most of uh, those, they usually, you can tell when you're getting into padding and subplots and shit that doesn't really matter. Like we were like way too much screen time for that crazy upstairs neighbor for Jessica Jones. <laughs> and then there's like, you know, oh, fucking Kilgrave's parents are coming into it. And it's like, no, 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 cut this shit out. Cut to the climax. You don't need any of this shit. It feels like there's this weird third act flabbiness. Oh, that mm-hmm. happens with a lot of these shows. Mm-hmm. And knowing, and again, Stranger Things also doesn't have standard times for their eventual, eventual <laughs> I, episodes. I love that, that you just coined a term for third act flabbiness. <laughs> yeah, it is third act flabbiness. It's a point where it's like you had this momentum and it feels like you're building a story. And it's like, oh shit, we gotta, right. we only have three episodes worth of, of, of uh, material, but we've got like six episodes left. Right, well, they had all the, the ideas that didn't play for the first three episodes, right? It's weird, because Daredevil yeah. is like the exact opposite of this, where season two of Daredevil should have been two different seasons, hmm. but it was just sort of crammed in there. If you have ninjas that can suddenly come back from the dead, and you've been largely not supernatural up until this point, you got to give that breathing room so the audience sure. can accept it. Sure. So, you know, they cramped too much in that, but... Luke Cage had the same sort of thing where you had Mahershala Ali and Alfre Woodard, who are amazing actors. Yeah. I believe both Oscar winners. I think so, yeah. They're both amazing, and they've created these two great villains that are nuanced and smart and compelling. And fuck it, at the end, let's push them aside and bring in this other actor playing uh, Diamondback, who's basically a Power Rangers villain <laughs> in like a, a weird 1990s style like VR outfit, and he's going to just punch the hero, and it's like, well, fuck nuance, fuck fuck this amazing stuff we've been building, let's just create a Power Rangers villain instead. Uh, that was, I, a, And that's again, that's that third act flabbiness, mm. where that either you you cut that dumb character out because he's so discordant with the uh, smart stuff you're already doing, how is this guy the smart character's boss? Is it? Is it? Do you think that it's it's just a slavish sort of like uh, allegiance to the idea of ten episodes as a ten episode arc? I think it is because because I always felt that that was interesting. Is that once you get beyond a network television, once an HBO or a Netflix, you could have a show that's forty four minutes long. Or you could have a you do a, an episode that's 125 minutes, and it doesn't matter if the if the story doesn't need anymore, you don't need to force it to be anymore. You could say the same thing about the number of episodes for a season. And I know I'm getting into territory yeah. where it could be like the BBC, where you know sometimes you get four episodes and that's an entire season. We're not married to time slots yeah. anymore, so yeah. you don't have to. Stranger Things again. I'm going to use them as the example because I think they've used Netflix better than most other shows. There are episodes of Stranger Things that are like 33 minutes long and other episodes that are like 50 minutes long. Yeah. They're not filling a time slot. They don't have to fill in all of it. So a show is only as long as it needs to be and feeling comfortable and and secure enough 
that you can do a short one. There was like one episode of Stranger Things where the opening credit montage, you know, the, the intro mm-hmm. is like 10 minutes into the episode. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. <laughs> I love that. That if that was on network TV, that would be after the first commercial break probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. But the fact that they're willing to do something like that and say, no, that's the appropriate time for that moment. Um, and we don't have to marry ourselves to this. You don't, the only thing that keeps those Marvel shows at that number of episodes has got to be a contract that they wrote in advance. Right. right. And I think that if they're going to rewrite that contract, because obviously I think the sort of defenders package was what they sold to Netflix. Like, Hey, we're going to do these four shows. They're going to have 13 episodes a piece. And then they're going to lead into the defenders, which has eight episodes. And you're like, okay, that's what we do. But then you're married to that number. And you're, you're writing these episodes. You're writing the first season of Jessica Jones. It would have been stronger if they'd cut a lot of that stuff out and condensed it. Yeah. yeah. So, but they're married to that contract that they chose because that, that was chosen by somebody who sold a group of shows rather than just one show. And I, I think that's the problem. Stranger Things, I think, was almost like a long movie mm-hmm. where I think they plotted it out a lot better. And there's, I don't think there's a lot of fat. And flab on Stranger Things. It it might have been that and to forgive the use of the uh, nine dollar ninety nine cent film school uh, word, but not tour. It might be with Stranger Things. It's just it was the it was the brainchild of these two guys, right? I think they yeah, were the, the Duffer Brothers. Um, it might have been more like it was their brainchild, so of course they had it more meticulously planned out. Whereas the other is just sort of an exercise in like, okay, we've got to fill well multiple directors, all these writers. We'll got to we have to fill uh, you know X number of episodes. So that's why it feels less polished, less planned, less streamlined. Well, you, you know? have a, I think you have more freedom to sort of create your own tone with Marvel Netflix than probably with cinematic uh, Marvel. Mm, but yeah. I think I think at the same yeah. time though, you still have a lot of people say you got to hit these notes. So it's a lot harder to be an auteur when working for a major corporation right. like that. See, see, also Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright, yeah, yeah that's the reason he left uh, Ant Man. Yeah, uh, but it's like, but I can still see a lot of stuff that they're allowed to do. Like Luke Cage was able to create a real world for you know the Marvel version of Harlem. Mm-hmm. They had the fucking Delphonics on that show. That's awesome. That's fucking great. I mm-hmm. love the Delphonics ever since I saw Jackie Brown, <laughs> and you know. I think like, <laughs> it's it's pretty was what was it Method Man was on there? Yeah. yeah. That that's pretty great. I mean, that's the sort of thing that that's the that's the creator. That's the thing they were allowed to do because they were given a certain amount of freedom to build this show the way they wanted to. The the high points of these shows are usually very high, but the low points are just disappointing because I want to shave those out and just get to the good stuff because if it left Luke Cage instead of 13 episodes as like 7 or 8 Super, super amazing stuff. Yeah. And I think that's – we have to take advantage of the Netflix format. And I think in a weird way, um, Arrested Development did a better job of it too. Hmm. Um, yeah. A lot of people hate season four. I tend to yeah. like it. But it's definitely different than the TV version because they knew they were on a model that could be binged. Right. It's a binge show. Right. And it only works if you binge it. Yeah. So I think we're kind of getting there. And I think that's the thing that – would definitely help the people at CBS, but maybe the fact that they're drip, drip, dripping it out week to week is because they got to get people to buy it again. So people don't just buy it for one month, watch Star Trek and then leave it. I don't know. I think that this is, this is my wild crackpot tinfoil hat theory is I think that we are actually past, we are past the nadir of peak TV. Um, and the same type of sort of cynical cash, cash in shit, um, 
that we're now sort of seeing in the superhero movies um, is that I think peak TV prestige TV as a thing has now gone has now uh, peaked and there are too many players trying to make prestige TV that aren't good enough or aren't committed enough to the idea of it being good long terms you know long form storytelling um that you're having all this piecemeal shit uh and stuff that isn't isn't well planned out um and is is too much maybe more like cbs's case network tv people trying to do peak tv rather than just bringing in filmmakers who know how to make great pieces of art and then doing and doing tv maybe that's the the struggle we're at now is that we're just on the downslope of peak tv and where well, the garbage that we're seeing is a result of people trying to be like, well, we got to do Breaking Bad too, you know? Yeah. The Breaking th- Bad Electric Boogaloo. Breaking Badder. <laughs> but the weird thing with that, though, too, is this is kind of getting into something else I wanted to talk about, which is um, we do bitch a lot on this show. Yeah, We yeah. just finished bitching. Yeah, let's, we're over with that. I think I'm fine. But Ask me after September 24th, and then we'll see if there's more bitching needed. Oh, there will be more bitching, <laughs> even if it's pretty good. Sometimes pretty good is the worst something can be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You're just like, eh. I don't, it's like the worst thing is is knowing there's a property that you really like, that you just don't like anymore, and that it's going on out there, and I want to be excited about it. You're going to, you're. I think, I, I also predict that in October, Mike, you're going to have to ask me to stop hitting myself. Oh. By then, you're probably going to have to have a, you're going to sit down, have an intervention. About, oh, you have to know everything so you can accurately complain about a thing you don't enjoy. <laughs> yeah. But, um. <laughs> Getting into something that we we do talk about a lot, we we I think a lot of people assume that we're a lot more stringent in our rules, like our dislike of reboots and Zack Snyder. What other <laughs> horses are there that are just covered in bruises, <laughs> dead horses that have just been beaten to the point that there's just powdered skeleton and a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of fat on the ground? But yeah, I think um, there are exceptions to those rules, and I think one of the great examples you mentioned, Breaking Batter. Uh, Better Call Saul is some of the best TV that's out there nowadays. Yeah, it's true. That's true. And not only is yeah. it expanding the universe and doing a spinoff of Breaking Bad, which by all accounts is a great show that you should probably just leave alone, it's really good. Yeah. It's also a prequel. Yeah. And the fact that they're doing a, a good prequel, that that's an exception to a rule we have. Are there that many good prequels? And it's almost like there's so much crap that you don't want to look at it at all when you see these certain keywords things that like when you hear hey we're going to do another star trek show and it happens before pike you just go (laughs) i don't want any more shows about how this got started i don't want any more prequels can we just tell a story and uh Uh, what does Patton oswald would say i don't want to see john voight's ball sack it's pretty much john voight's ball sack (laughs) and uh a lot of i think one thing that works with uh, better call saul is that it it exists in the world of sort of breaking bad albuquerque yeah but that it it involves an completely different group of characters and there's only a couple people that kind of cross over into it yeah and i think that it's actually stronger for being a prequel which is a weird thing to come right. out of my mouth. Right. Because you know the sort of person that Saul Goodman is in Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. And you see this guy who's going to become him. And watching the show, there's this kind of doom hanging over his head. Because you know where he ultimately ends up. And they keep bringing you back to that at the beginning of every season in those black and white segments. Right, right. And he can still have danger even though you know what his fate is, right? You and uh Part of it is that you're, he's a character that has sort of has a moral code that he can he he gets the opportunity to be 
corrupt and to enfranchise himself over everyone else. And yet again and again and again, he's pulled back mm-hmm. um, to uh, to not being the asshole, to not being that guy that you first meet in Breaking Bad as he's sort of like whistling and, and insulting detectives in the police station, you know, like um, he's... He in the for, for, for it's a true prequel in that respect. Yeah, in right? Breaking Bad, he is defending clearly guilty people and getting them back on the streets. Right, and well, and but also he has a he, direct hand in like the meth market. Right, <laughs> right. It's, it's you're right. It's it's something that we it's something that we should talk about. We should do our exceptions to the rule show. So coming soon, I suppose. Yeah, right. But yeah, I think with him and the idea that you know what he's going to become, you actually have this this. Back and forth, this bit of this tug of war about whether this is ultimately – is this the liberation of this guy from these people who are trying to tell him what to do, including his older brother? Or is this the downfall? And I like that feeling of not knowing whether his character in Breaking Bad is a triumph or a failure. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. And I think that's what makes it work. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I suppose we should give it a rest there. Uh, thanks again for our Patreon donors and people who hope to make our recording studio. Um, if you want to donate, Mike, how can they get a hold of us? Oh, well, there's a couple ways that you can support us. If you like the show that you just listened to, think about giving us a dollar a month. Go to RadioVersusTheMartians.com. There's a button for PayPal if you don't want to commit to it. Or if you want to become one of our Patreon subscribers, click on the button that says support us on Patreon or go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians. Give us some money. And uh, if you give at least a dollar a month, you get exclusive episodes just for subscribers. That's awesome. And even if you don't want to give us money, support us by rating us on iTunes or drop by, leave a comment on radio versus the Martians.com. Okay. Thanks everybody. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.